why he managed to fire one shot but no more, leaving four cartridges locked in place by corrosion, the cylinder itself a useless, immobile lump. After more than thirty-five years as a lawman, I knew better than to become too attached to the first theory that shows its face. The gun could have been dropped by anyone— a Mexican national skewered by an Apache's arrow while hiking to a new life in New Mexico territory, a wagon driver not paying attention as the gun worked its way out of his hip holster, a family drama where one man drew on another, shots were traded, and the colt fell into place, dropping from a lifeless hand. That's the one that appealed to me, since... I knew the legend that Josiah Bennett had been murdered by his own son-in-law. The legend contended that an axe had canceled Josiah's dreams. Maybe he'd managed only a single shot in self-defense. To a local history buff like me, the discovery of the gun and all it meant was enough to trigger a legendary dose of insomnia. The evening after I'd found the relic... I'd read myself red-eyed, researching everything Colt from my own voluminous library. Because older Colts had their serial numbers stamped in three places on the frame and grip straps, I was able to scrape off enough rusted crud to piece together the number. A digit from here, a digit from there. The gun was manufactured in 1889, A letter to Colt's archives would find out to whom the revolver was originally shipped. That reply would take several months. Agony for a man who no longer purchased green bananas. Confronted with a challenge, some folks pace the floor. Some chew fingernails, some eat or smoke. I find a comfortable vantage point, heavy with peace and quiet and let my mind wander through its files. What better reason to drive out to Posadas County's vast collection of the boonies, take the short walk to this vantage point, and gaze out across the night landscape that had challenged the Bennetts a hundred years before. But that puzzle, the gun, the Bennett family, and their fate, was only one motivation for my trek to the rim of Cat Mesa. In addition, my thoughts whirled around to what was now referred to in the family as the concert. Not my blood family, of course. My four kids, now grown and deep into middle age, were scattered across the country doing their own thing. One of them, my oldest daughter, Camille, managed to call me too often, fretting that I was not doing enough to reach some ridiculous benchmark of old age. The concert burst upon my adopted family, the Guzmans, like a prairie fire. Like everyone else in town, I was in the blissful dark about the whole matter until two weeks before, when the first glossy posters went up. The posters appeared in several strategic spots, announcing that at 8 o'clock on Saturday night, February 9th, my godson... Francisco Guzman, along with a conservatory chum, Mateo Atencio, would be hosted in concert at the high school. A big concert. An event. The photo displayed on the poster was professional.
showing the 13-year-old Francisco looking mature and perfectly decked out in black, one arm resting on a polished grand piano's keyboard. The slightest of smiles touched his lips, guaranteed to set young lady's heart's pity-patty. Standing just behind him, holding a brilliantly polished silver flute, was a lad I'd never met. Mateo Atencio could have been Francisco's older brother. Two kids, both prodigies, too young to drive themselves to the concert. The issue wasn't that the two kids would put on a concert. That's what talented musicians do, and even some who aren't so talented. But genius or not, Francisco R. Guzman was but 13, very minor indeed. Granted, the residential conservatory that he attended in Edgarton.